Chapter Eleven of Campfire Girls in the Country by Stella M. Francis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Howlett. A Storm and a Story. After the first clear warning in the southeastern sky, the storm came rapidly, driven by a furious wind. The clouds were dark, almost black and here and there were streaked or fringed with grayish-white. Their advance across the heavens appeared as rapid as that of a train moving across a prairie in the distance. The campfire girls, their guardian, and Mrs. Hutchins, all remained outside until the first drops of rain fell. In accord with the guardian's suggestion, it was decided not to light a bonfire, lest some of the embers be blown onto the tents. Hazel and Mrs. Hutchins occupied the tent of Mr. and Mrs. Mackenzie, who had returned to their house near the cultivated portion of the farm. Darkness settled rapidly, and they lighted several candles, which illuminated the sheltered enclosure very well. Then they seated themselves on camp chairs beside one of the cots, and Aunt Hannah introduced the subject that was weighing heavily on her mind her narrative being punctuated with flashes of lightning and peals of thunder, while the rain poured down in torrents on the fly of the tent. "'You will remember this evening as perhaps you will remember none other in your entire girlhood,' she began. "'And there is a peculiar reason for my prophecy. If I had been planning every detail ahead, I would not have selected a stormy night and a semi-wilderness as time and place for telling my story.' There is more in the psychology of a storm than most people suspect. I know this from a very impressionable experience. Many of the things heard, seen, and done by me in my childhood days I cannot recall now without some of the awe associations of a stormy night in the country. Therefore I would suggest that you attempt to fix your mind calmly on the unromantic reality of things in order that you may recall this scene in after years as rationally as possible. I surely must look for something unusual and interesting after an introduction of that kind, Hazel interposed. I suppose I am too young to get the full meaning of what you say, and yet I can't help looking for something very much out of the ordinary. Your expectation is well warranted, Aunt Hannah replied and I'll leave it for you to decide as to whether I have overdone the thing in my introductory warning. Well, here goes. The trouble I'm in has a double cause. I have lost something, and I have forgotten something. If I could remember what I have forgotten, the loss probably would not be serious. If I had what I lost, the lapse of memory probably would be of no consequence. That doesn't sound as if you overdid your warning, Hazel said with a smile as she leaned forward in an attitude of deepened interest. I'll go back to the beginning of my story, Mrs. Hutchins continued. Your Uncle Edmund, who died eighteen months ago, was trustee of an estate amounting to more than one hundred thousand dollars, and to secure his bondsman, scheduled nearly all of his property, including this farm. The chief beneficiary of the estate is a child, a grand-nephew of his, who is in the custody of another relative in Baltimore. Well, at the death of my husband, the trusteeship passed to me. 
but before his death there was a period of several months during which it was evident that something was weighing heavily on his mind and troubling him greatly. I tried to find out what it was, but was unsuccessful for some time. At last I learned that there was a minor heir and legatee of the estate who was trying to make trouble, and he was succeeding in annoying your uncle far more than I had any idea. In fact, although I did not realize it at the time, your uncle's mental balance was wavering. The estate consisted principally of mortgage bonds, only a few of which were registered. Your uncle kept them at first in a vault in Baltimore, but a few months before he died, he brought them to Fairbury and put them in a local vault. I did not know this or I would have suspected something wrong, for the small vaults here are hardly the best places for keeping a fortune of that size and character. On his deathbed he informed me of this act, and also that he had moved the securities from the local vault. He told me where he put them, but I was in such a state of distress that it made no impression on my mind. It seems to me that he said he buried the papers, but for the life of me I can't recall where it was. I did remember, however, that he said he had left a sealed letter addressed to me at one of the local banks, with instruction for its delivery to me in the event of his death. The letter, he said, contained full information as to where I would find the papers of this trust estate, and I suppose the fact that I knew he had left such information caused me to pay little attention to his oral statement as to where the papers were. A day or two after his death, the letter was delivered to me, but I was in no condition of mind to pay any attention to business. I opened the letter, saw that it dealt with business pure and simple, and laid it aside, intending to take the matter up when I felt better. But when I looked for it a few days later I could not find it. For a year and a half I hunted the house high and low for that letter. Meanwhile relatives of the heir began to ask questions as the usual remittances failed to come. I was in a quandary, and I suppose foolishly evaded the issue hoping to find the letter that would tell me where the missing papers were. They became more insistent, and I began to make remittances from my own resources. But their suspicions were aroused, and a demand was made upon me for an accounting. Realizing that the bond given by my husband and myself was ample security, I refused. But it seems that some of my husband's relatives did not like me very well, and were bent on making trouble for me. They hired a lawyer, a Mr. Anderson, a man you saw here a little while ago, and the systematic course of hypocritically polite annoyance that he began indicated the kind of instructions he had received from his clients. That was the nature of his mission here today. He threatened to start proceedings against me in the local courts if I did not voluntarily give up my trusteeship and turn over the property in my charge to another trustee, whom his clients wished to be named. I refused. "'Hadn't you ever seen this lawyer before he called today?' Hazel asked. "'No, I hadn't,' Aunt Hannah replied. "'His annoyances had been conducted through the mails and through a local attorney, the most unscrupulous member of the bar in Fairbury.'
"'Haven't you a lawyer of your own who advises you in this matter?' "'To be sure I have, and he knows the whole situation. "'I've directed this man, Anderson, and his local representative to communicate with him, "'but they refused to do it. "'I've been turning Anderson's letters over to my lawyer, "'and now he has come to see me personally.' "'Didn't you ever find that missing letter?' Hazel inquired. "'Oh, yes, I did,' Aunt Hannah said apologetically, as if suddenly recovering from a lapse of memory. "'And where do you think I found it? The simplest place on earth. It had slipped down behind the facing of the mantle over the fireplace. I found it on the Fourth of July, shortly before we left the house to go to the square where the celebration was held. I was looking for a little gold pen that I had missed,' and got up on a chair to get a better view over the mantle. Then for the first time I observed that the mantle was sprung out slightly from the fireplace. Like a flash the suggestion came to me that that was where the missing letter might be, and I looked eagerly down into the crevice. Sure enough, a white paper edge was in plain view. I got a hat pin and began to pick at it. Presently I drew out the missing letter written by my husband. I opened it, but quickly discovered something that my first glance months ago had failed to impress on my mind. The handwriting of my husband, particularly in the latter part of the letter, was so nervous and pot-hooked as to be almost illegible. It was but another indication of his mental condition during the last few months before he died. I saw at once that it would require considerable study to decipher it. So I put it into my handbag, hoping to find an opportunity to study it over in the course of the day, or possibly to see my lawyer and enlist his aid. And that letter was the article stolen from your handbag which caused you such distress, Hazel exclaimed, unable longer to repress her excited suspicion. Exactly, Aunt Hannah replied. And with it went my husband's secret, which he told to me and which I forgot. End of chapter 11